Hello, my name is Lainey Gilbert, and you are listening to The Lainey Train Home Away From Home, episode number three. It is currently 12.03 a.m. I just made a pot of coffee, and I'm ready to get this thing started. guys, I hope you're all doing well. If you're a college student, you are going into finals week right about now. That's where I am. And if you're not a college student, you just get to sit back and watch the chaos ensue. These last two weeks of online classes are going to be really interesting for us students at Purdue. And if you're going to another school, you may be ending soon as well. But I hope that all of you are staying sane. I hope you're getting enough sleep. And I hope that things are wrapping up soon. I just finished my French grammar class today. I finished my French conversation class a few weeks ago and I know what it feels like to want to wrap things up. So I hope that that's going well for everyone. As a little distraction though, today I have a great interview for you guys with a very talented athlete named Kip Janvrin. Throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, Kip Janvrin competed and set world records in the decathlon. Kip participated in the 92, 96, 2000, and 2004 Olympic trials. Kip viewed the 96 trials as his ticket to the games, but unfortunately that wasn't the year that he made it. He did end up making it in 2000. The first that I heard of Kip was my dad telling me about his experience in the 2000 Olympic trials and everything building up to it. See, Kip grew up in Iowa, but he ended up at UCM to get his master's. While there, he ended up on the same intramural team as my dad, and that is where our paths begin to cross. My dad would often recount the story of the 2000 Olympic trials that Kip participated in. That year, Dan O'Brien was set to put up a pretty big number, but he got out injured a few days before the competition, and that's when things started to change. Kip was one of the oldest competitors there, being in his mid-30s, and he's still the oldest athlete to ever compete in the Olympic decathlon. It was the final day of the decathlon at the 2000 Olympic trials, and Kip was currently in fifth place. Tom Pappas and Chris Huffins had already secured their spots on the Olympic team, but third place was up for grabs. Kip knew he'd have to go below a 413 in order to make the team, and he was confident he could. He took off and stayed a good distance ahead of everyone, with Phil McMullen at his side for the first half. Kip eventually pulled ahead and finished at 4.11.99. So Kip Janvrin running to make the U.S. Olympic team is around... The turn to the home stretch for the final time. There's Pappas. He's going to be on the team. Pappas and Huffins will probably be on it too. But here's Janvin coming to the last event. He had to run well to make the Olympic team. And he's come through. Janvin sprinting for the finish at 1,500 meters. And he's on the U.S. Olympic team. Kip currently lives in Warrensburg, Missouri with his wife and has two sons, one of which just began his professional baseball career last year. I decided to call up Kip and ask him about the 2000 Olympics and what he's been doing lately. Hello, this is Kip. Hey Kip, how are you? This is Lainey. I'm going to start you off with a bit of an intro because I did quite a bit of research on you. You've quite the career, I have to say. (laughs) Um, I just didn't know when to quit. (laughs) <laughs> that's I do have a question about that actually but so I'll start off just you were coached by Guy Moser for the majority of your career I feel like that's really important to start off with you were 2018 head coach of the men's team USA at the Thorpe Cup just starting from most recent to least recent you're five-time division three national champ three-time decathlon one-time pole vault and one-time 400 meter hurdles and you were in college you set your personal best at the 1996 Olympic trials with 8,000 no no okay I well, yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah, you're right there reading through that. My mm-hmm. personal best was set right after that later. Okay. Right, you're fine. Okay. At the, in the 96, 
Olympic trials, when you scored 8,345 points, you got fourth, but that's the largest amount of points scored by a non-Olympic qualifying athlete. Is that true? That is correct. Okay. And then you PR'd later at the 1996 Thorpe Cup with 8,462. That's where you PR'd, right? Correct. All right. And then you made the Olympic team in 2000 and you didn't score quite as high as in 96, but you still made the team. I think 96 was a pretty special case. There were a lot of high scorers there. 15-time Drake Relays Decathlon champion. You won your first title at the 13th U.S. Championship? Yep, in 2001. 2001. Um, You're a world record holder for decathlon wins at 41. Stupid stat, but true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You have the most decathlons in the world, over 7,000 points, which is estimated to be 76, I think, in the interview with Athletic Experience. That was the number you had it at? Yeah, I think that's correct. And then U.S. record holder for the most 8,000-point decathlon scores, which is you have 26 of those decathlons scored over 8,000 points. Former world record holder in the isoathlon, which is a double decathlon, you set that at 37 and you wanted to start that at a younger age but you weren't able to invest at that time is that right well it just didn't make sense i kept contacting meet directors it's very rarely held in the united states so i kept sending emails to meet directors say well if you if you give me a plane ticket and a place to stay i'll come over there and i'll almost guarantee a world record but you know it's kind of a an odd oddity competition so i couldn't find one and i finally did that's how it happened gotcha all right i have that next actually i think it's amazing that you get can guarantee a world record especially to those organizers who were able to take you there. You competed in eight Thorpe Cups and you coached two of them. Is that true? Or have you coached more since that interview? Nope, it's two. I have a few more bullet points about you, but you participated in every U.S. championship from 1989 to 2005 and you qualified in 2006. That is correct. All right. You brought UCM. So you're the coach. You coach for UCM as well, along with Kirk Peterson. And you brought UCM women's track to their first ever national championship and victory in 2014 in the 2014 to 2015 season. And you produced 16 men's and five women's victories at the Missouri Intercollegiate Athletic Association Championship. Yeah, I don't know what that number is. It's probably actually much more than that. Um, we've had a lot of conference titles. I don't even know what that is. The older you get, the less you care about those things. Impressive nonetheless, whatever the exact number is. But I find all of this out about you and I've grown up hearing about your athleticism and how amazing that that is. And that's incredible. But my first memory of you is a video of you pond vaulting. <laughs> and today. I don't do near as much, but I have kids on the team that still come out and do it. <laughs> I that is the first that I think I ever heard of Kip Janbrin was dad showing me that video and then later on he told me all about you and I think that's amazing. But I just want to start off with our first like official question. You've been in the sport for so long. How have you seen it change in all the time that you've been involved in it? Well definitely when I first got started in track and field was almost in the era before professionalism. You know, Carl Lewis made a big push back in the 80s to actually get paid and things like that. I remember the first year that, and I think this was 89, the first time I actually was going to make money through track and field, and I had to go get a license, and it was called a direct payment license. And I carried this card around, and that enabled a meet director or something to put money into an account under my name. And I had an account at my local bank, that was holding money that I would get paid, and I never got paid a lot, but that money would go in that account, and then if I needed to buy a pair of shoes or I needed to travel, I would I would go to the bank and say, can I utilize this amount of money to go do this, and then the bank would okay it, and you know, it was more than four or five years later, then you could basically accept anything, but that's a big aspect of it. Nowadays, athletes train year-round. They're very serious about it. There's good money that can be made for the elite people. 
Uh, when I first came up and first was started, it was really done for the pure joy of the sport. And um, I kind of missed that aspect of it. So that aspect's changed. People are much more knowledgeable about training, and they're doing it year-round. You're going into your 31st season, or this is your 31st season at Central Missouri, is that right? Yes, 31st, correct. And so I just want to know, what coaching versus competing, how does that work for you? Do you get as much of a thrill out of coaching as you did? What's different? What do you miss? What do you like more? Well, back when I was doing a lot of competing, you know, they're they're totally different. If the way I look at, um, you know, when I go do something, I was doing it for my enjoyment, for my personal satisfaction. And when I'm coaching, those things still exist. But a lot of it was done because that was my job. That's what I was expected to do. And a lot of the personal success that I had as an athlete helped me as a coach because my kids on the team say, wow, look what Kip is doing. He's so good. Let's listen to him. Let's do the things that he is telling us, and we will have those same successes. And now that I don't really compete anymore, it's harder to get those lessons to those people. So um, the success we've had as a team at Central Missouri, I mean, those those are things are very important. It gives great notoriety to the university. Um, That's what I do. That's why I'm coaching. Um, I want to see kids get better and have success. And that's what drives me every day. I love that answer. According to an article by Joe Posnanski in the Kansas City Star, you built your own high jump pit and pole vault runway and shop class? So at my home up in Iowa, you know, houses are spread out a little bit, but our, our house and our neighbor's house had a big backyard where we had enough room that we could play football, um, some different things, but we kind of made a loop around the, the outskirts of it. And occasionally we'd run races and we'd always finish under the clothesline because I remember that distinctively. (laughs) And then at some point, I put a couple poles on the ground and made a high jump pit. And then I got a few box springs and made a little pole vault pit. You know, my dad was a high school track coach, so I could go out to the high school. But to me, that didn't make a lot of sense when I had a backyard with plenty of room to do those things. And uh, the first thing I learned to pull vault with was a piece of the swing set, you know, so I had a bit of an eight foot long piece of pipe that weighed about 25 pounds, and that was my pole. Uh, and I didn't know anything. And so some of the rudimentary things that I began as, it was just fun. It was joy, and I saw other people do it, so I was trying to emulate it. So cool. I love hearing about these backstories. To play off of that a little bit, you also, you started young you so you ran high school cross country and you won the ncaa division three decathlon national championships in 86 87 88 is that true that's correct all right so you had such an impressive career when you were young how did you discover the decathlon what hooked you what made you decide that you liked all of those 10 events what made you want to pursue all of them rather than picking one sure i mean and you know i i had a lot of success in high school but you know and, and as i tried to get out and get recruited collegiately, I realized that my marks are pretty average compared to a lot, what a lot of kids in the big cities were doing. But I went to a meet in a town called Redfield, which is only about 20 minutes from my hometown, uh, my junior high school. And I was pole vaulting, I high jumped, I ran a couple running events. And a guy that was working the pole vault came over and talked to me. His name was Rex Harvey. And uh, unfortunately, Rex Harvey passed away this winter. And I actually went to his visitation the night before one of our meets. But Rex Hardy had competed in more Drake relays and more decathlons than me by far. But he said, hey, I'm going to go to a meet this summer in Lincoln, Nebraska, and do this thing called the decathlon. Is it something you would be interested in? And, you know, I had never done probably more than half of the events, never hurdled, never thrown a javelin or discus and some of those things. But I said, sure, I'd be interested in going. And um, this was in June of 83. And I remember um, I ended up maybe missing a baseball game to go, which made my baseball coach mad. But um, I went over, I mean, I, I 
I figured out how to throw kind of a makeshift javelin, and, and I think Rex taught me how to throw the discus a little bit. But I went there, and I went with a couple other people that he drug along, and we did those 10 events over two days. And I, I became friends with Ed Fye and um, some other people in that meet that, you know, I never knew at the time, but I've become good friends with since. But I really fell in love with it that day. And what it was is it was 10 different opportunities to compete against myself. You know, if we're in a 100-meter dash, the goal is to beat the guy next to you. In a decathlon, you could get last in the 100 meters, but if you ran a little bit faster than you'd ever run before, now you get more points than you had before, and you're on your way to a better performance. And so that's the uniqueness and the neatness of the decathlon is you're really competing against yourself in the scoring tables and the events, and you can be cheering on the guys right next to you as they're they're doing the exact same things. And the camaraderie of the decathletes is different than any other event in track and field. Um, they're just buddies because they're out there for 10, 12 hours a day for two days in a row. And, you know, you're sharing food, you're sharing advice, and you're sharing stories. And you just develop a really neat kinship that uh, really lasts forever. I have a few names listed that I was going to ask you about a little later in the interview, but I was hoping that you'd bring some of those guys up. I think that it's incredible how close you can get with them. And like you said, you can cheer for them in events. And so you mentioned if you run faster than you have before, you'll get a few extra points in some of the races. And that's definitely something that happened in the Olympic trials in 2000. I'm going to kind of set the scene for that a little bit. You had tried for the Olympic trials three times prior to that, right? That's 88. 92 and 96? I uh, I tried to make the 88 trials and I came up just short, but I competed in the 92 trials and the 96 trials as well. So 2000 was the first time you made the Olympic team? Correct. All right. So this is the Olympic trials in 2000. You told no one to come. You weren't really expecting to make the team prior to, but your immediate family ended up coming. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to, so in 96, I, I was really good and I was fairly confident that I was going to make that team just because I knew where my performances were going to be. And so, you know, a lot of people from my hometown, a lot of people from Central Missouri, a lot of college buddies all came down. I think I think I had a, a batch of tickets for 96 people, you know, and, and I had a great performance in the 96 trials, but three other guys had even better performances, and that's why I didn't make the team. But I wasn't the same athlete in 2000. I was no longer, you know, that, carrying that confidence that I was going to put up a big score. It was kind of more about this is going to be my swan song and my parents and my wife and their kids and my sister and her family. They were really on vacation. I know they all went to some amusement park the day before the meet, and mm-hmm. I think both my boys got the flu. I mean, it was kind of crazy all the things that went on before the competition started. And, you know, it was more of a vacation, and, and I ended up riding home with them like flew on the way out but so my intent was not to ever make that team it was more like I'm gonna go hang out with all my buddies and see who makes the team that just makes the story so much more incredible it was viewed as a vacation for you guys you were in ninth after the first day but you pulled ahead in pole vault and after javelin you were ranked fifth prior to the 1500 that is correct. All right. And Dan O'Brien, who was supposed to put up a really big number that year, was injured and he couldn't make the trials. And you said somebody's going to make the team who didn't expect to. Was that when it turned it around for you mentally? Well, you know, not necessarily for me, but, you know, I think I told my wife or somebody that once Dan O'Brien dropped out the day or two days before, I said, somebody's going to make the Olympic team that didn't expect to make it. And, you know, one of the things I got out of my dad after the competition was over, uh, Stephen Moore was also in the competition with having a pretty good meet. And Stephen no-heighted in the vault, which means he got zero points and he's totally out of the potential to make the Olympic team. And my dad told me later, right when he no-heighted, there was three or four guys, myself included, that all of a sudden 
stood up and started moving around like, wow, I've got a chance. And it was pretty obvious at that point, there was a handful of us that became engaged with the competition at that point because we knew somebody was going to make it. And around that time, you were told that you were going to need to run below a 413 and you knew you could do it. You said you would be able to. Is that true? When I've heard this story just from a podcast and from my dad talking about it, you were pretty confident that you could do it because you knew you needed to. Well, it came a lot of things. One, I had a good distance background. I was in pretty good shape. I mean, of all the events, that would be the one I had the most confidence in. And I always feel like you can control that race more than you can a jump or anything like that. And um, I, I had run enough good 1500s and had enough experience that I was not going to really, I wasn't going to let anything keep me from doing that. You know, it didn't matter if somebody else was going to run super fast or whatever, but I had trained so long to have that one opportunity. I, I just didn't feel like I was going to let anything take that opportunity away. And to elaborate more on the story, during that 1500, you know, Frank Zarnowski, who's the guru in the decathlon and knows all the stats and everything, he was announcing the 1500 at the Olympic trials. And, you know, as soon as the race started, he said, well, this, this race right here has got many stories and many tales going on. And he starts off talking about that Tom Pappas, an up-and-coming, the NCAA record holder, is going to win this championships and go on to his first Olympics. And second place is going to go to Chris Huffins, who was in the, in the Olympic team in 96 and is a medal threat. And then it said, the third position is up in the air at this point. And it talked about a couple other people, and then it said, and the guy with the best opportunity is journeyman Kip Jambrin, a, a veteran of whatever 70-some decathlons. He's 35 years old. And I'm listening to all this while I'm running the race. And it, and it was actually a godsend because it made time go by. And anybody that runs a 1,500 or any distance race for that matter, the first half of the race, you just want to disappear. You just want it to go away so you don't understand the hurt that you go through. And then you want to just kind of make it a, a 90 second or a minute and a half pain that you can push through. And so I got to listen to all these accolades about myself and these other guys. And then I got to a certain point of the race. I said, okay, now it's time to go to work to make sure you accomplish what you need to accomplish. Yeah. And you can see you going to work in that video of it. I know the first 800 Phil McMullen stayed in stride with you pretty well, but he started to fall back and it became just you. And then in the straightaway, I think this is one of those amazing moments in sports when Trafton Rogers was just yelling for you and you I mean it, that was amazing I love to see that and then you finished and you ran right into Steve Fritz's arms and that made the highlight on ESPN that night is that true that's that's true and, and it, those those things right there go back to what we talked about the camaraderie and the friendships you develop you know we, we're talking about two guys that were at the, one of the most important meets of their life and not having a good meet but yet they're helping other guys out you know trapped and Rogers slowed down so he could help me run the last straightaway. And Steve Fritz really should have stopped and got out of the competition four or five events ago because he was having such a bad meet, but he wanted to be able to stay on the infield and participate and be around everybody else and help me share that moment at the end of the race. And so, you know, those are just really cool side notes to, to the whole thing. Yeah, it's just one of those things that kind of gives you goosebumps to hear about stories like that, especially at such a high level of people still rooting for each other and that, that support that you get. So now, you know, that was 20 years ago, and that's amazing, but is there such a thing as enough? What does your training still look like if you're still, you're, I'm sure you're still staying in shape. When, will there be a stopping point for you? Do you picture one? Do you know when that would be if there is one? 
Well, I, I haven't done a track and field competition in six years now. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I was training with some kids on our team, just doing the running workouts, and my knees started hurting. So what I do now is I play a lot of golf. I play a little bit of pickup basketball. But other than that, not a whole lot of things. I mean, I, I can't really go out and do running workouts like I want to anymore. And I, and I just really don't try to go throw the shot and high jump and pole vault as much as I'd like to. And, and those, to be honest, those are some of the things I really miss. Those mm. workouts, uh, challenging your body. And, you know, I would love to go pole vault 17 feet again, but I know that's never going to happen. But the thrill of making those accomplishments. And, and to be honest with you, that was one of the things that was hard as I got older in my competitive career is to toe the line to compete knowing that the our personal best was non-existent. And that was when it was really hard for me to continue to compete. And that's when it really came down to the joy and enjoyment of the competitors and of what competition was. And that's what kind of kept me going beyond my prime. Yeah, I understand that. I was looking up some YouTube videos of you as well, and I saw you competing in the Decathlon Masters in 2010. Yes. And so you at that point were, you were 45 in 2010? Uh, let me think. I, I know I did the World Masters when I was 40. I competed in the, uh, when I was 48, I competed. I think that meet you saw, I was 44. And I know which meet you're talking about. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. 44 then. That is just amazing that your career has just lasted that long, whether or not you may be PRing. I hope that you know, I mean, I'm sure that you know how impressive that that is. And so you've been through, you kind of said there's some pain. There's You want to get through that last minute and a half of the 1500 and there's pain in sports and in life all the time. But what do you start to tell yourself when you hurt? I know there's a lot of mental toughness that goes into sports, especially at that level. But what is your mental positive self-talk sort of that you do? Well, and I'm, I'm going to give you another story. So in my yard, at my house, I have a loop that goes on the outskirts of the yard, and it's it's 517 meters around. And on days even when I've done full training and full workouts in the past, I would still come, and there'd be days when I would run loops around this loop in my yard. And um, a point about 400 meters into it is an uphill part. And the uphill part, it maybe only takes 10 seconds to run. But I don't know how many times I ran that loop. And when I got to that point, I kind of put in my mind, you've got 100 meters to go in the 1500 and you've got to finish strong. And right there, it gave it a purpose, a meaning. And I would always find a way to work a little harder up that hill and put myself back in a good position. And, you know, there was, there was a million workouts I did and a million times I went to the weight room when I kind of like, do I really need to do this? Do I really want to do this? Is it really meaningful? And you've got to look at your ultimate goal. And to be honest, all the way through 1996, my ultimate goal was to make the Olympic team. And that's why I did it. I was highly motivated and it was easier to train and I kind of enjoyed the pain of that. Now, once I got through 96, I kind of took up some of the things that I didn't really enjoy, you know, the, the heavy lifting on the legs and maybe some of the speed work. I kind of quit doing that. But the things that I enjoyed, you know, those pole vault days, those days of running those challenging intervals with kids on the team. The things that I enjoyed, I continued to do, and that's what kept my career moving forward, that I, I just trained a little bit smarter and I made it more enjoyable, which I think there's a lot of people that are in competition that don't do it for the pure joy. There's other motives and other reasons why they do it, and that's why it makes it more difficult. got to do it because you love it. Mm -hmm. That is very true. So after the 2000 Olympic trials, they happen. It was amazing, and that was a huge celebration, I'm sure. What's next? I've heard specifically right after you dropped your family off in Missouri after all of the trials were over and that meet was over, and then you went to St. Louis and played a softball tournament. 
awesome i also heard i think this was at that tournament you dove for a fly ball and collided with a center fielder and everyone thought that it was over for a second i, I remember that yeah but <laughs> you know when you compete you compete you know, I, I keep thinking back and, and if i go back to pre-96 trial pretty much everything i did was with the intent of making the 96 team after i didn't make that team i no longer was as concerned about all those other things that needed me to make the team, I was more concerned about enjoying life, having fun, doing those things. And so, you know, chasing after that ball was just popped up. And if I was going to compete, I was going to compete for my best. Very true, very true. To get back to, I know I keep bringing up the trials in the past prior to 2000, but in 88, 92, and 96, you did so good and you got so close in those years, but you didn't make the team at that time. But what kept you going to eventually make the team in 2000? I know that you said that you knew how good you were and you knew that you could improve, but I'm sure there were some times where maybe you didn't want to. Was there ever or was there never a negative thought? Well, you know, there, there was times. I mean, I don't know how many times I maybe had a, an interview for another job that would have taken me away from Warrensburg and would have put me in a position where maybe they would not allow me to train. I was very fortunate that, you know, my bosses at Central Missouri allowed me to continue to go to the Drake Relays and go to different meets and be, be away from UCM for periods of time. You know, Peterson, my co-coach, was very helpful. You know, when I was gone, somebody was keeping the, the lights on at the office, and that was him. I also got several athletes on the team, some of them that came by and trained with me and pushed me in the workout. And obviously my wife was hugely supportive. You know, 
when I proposed to her in 1993, I said, honey, I need you to understand that through the 96 Olympic trials, the most important thing is the decathlon and the pursuit of that goal. And I need you to support that if we can continue to move forward. And she said, great. And then, you know, as I kept training all those years after, she kept wondering, when is my time? And she kind of still that way. But, um, you know, I, I really continued to compete because I enjoyed being around the other athletes in the competition. And that was hugely important. And, you know, I, I've talked to you about the friends I made through the decathlon and the opportunities I got because of the people I competed around. And um, that, that was really why I did it. There's nothing better than towing the line with guys and getting in the trenches with them and, and going to work and having success and uh, high-fiving a guy when he does something good and having him high-five you back when you do well as well. And yeah, you talk about some of the guys that you've trained with or for, or, and I mean, of course, your wife uh, clearly was a good motivation and allowed you to do what you did, but you've talked about, well, maybe not in this interview, but in past interviews, you talked about Tom Pappas and Guy Mosier, Chris Huffins and Steve Fritz, Jason Ramsey, and of course, Trafton Rogers that we mentioned earlier, who um, was with you in the straightaway when you finished that 1500. But have you kept up with them since not competing as much? Well, obviously, Guy Moser, who was my coach, he actually coaches here at Central Missouri with me. And so I'm very, very fortunate to have him on my staff here. I talked to Tom Pappas quite a bit. We've become very close friends. He, he's in Eugene, Oregon. And so when I go out there for the U.S. championships or trials, a lot of times I'll spend some time with him and his wife and four kids. Chris Hoppins, which is crazy. I hadn't seen Chris for a while, although I know he's a college coach at the Division One level, but his son was drafted 10 spots earlier than my son hmm. in last June's Major League Baseball draft. And we crossed paths at a rookie baseball game in Florida and got a picture of the four of us together, which was really cool. And then uh, Steve Fritz, he coached for a long time at K-State, and then um, he was a referee for our home track meet last year that we hosted because I brought him over for it. Actually, Central Missouri is recruiting his son to come potentially come in here and play basketball. So, yeah, I stick around with uh, him quite a bit. Jason Ramsey, I don't see as much, although, you know, he competed in the uh, double decathlon and was stationed in Italy at the time. So, I know he's in Kansas City. He's a policeman. I I don't keep in touch with these people near as good as I should, but I I do from time to time hear from them, and, and that's pretty cool. That is super cool. So, move on to, you know, present day now. The coronavirus is, you know, everything's out of whack with that. And your season was cut short at UCM. How is the team? Where are all of them in their training, sort of? But are you, do you send them workouts? Are you keeping in touch? And how is that looking right now? We had our conference championships. Uh, we made it through that. And then um, we were actually about 30 hours from competing at our NCAA national meet in Birmingham, Alabama, when they pulled the plug on everything. And it was, you know, basically I texted every kid on the team that was at the championships and said, meet's over. I'm sorry. We're going to depart the hotel and head to home in an hour. And, you know, I, I had a bunch of under the bus and they just could not believe that that opportunity was gone. And we had two guys that were fifth year seniors that only came back for this year for the opportunity to compete. Mm-hmm. And now that was gone for them and, um, you know, lost their outdoor season as well. But, you know, once once we got a handle on things and we knew there was not going to be an outdoor season, we communicated that to all of our kids. Um, we're trying to stay in touch with them and make sure they're moving ahead academically, that they're doing well in the classroom. Uh, we have provided some basic fitness training, I guess, for not a better word. I'm, I'm kind of weary to send specific workouts because the last thing I want to have is a kid say, yeah, coach, I went over to the track to do the workout you gave me and I got the virus. <laughs> and so we've tried to be very, very generic. You know, 
our outdoor track is is open and that's probably one of the hotbeds in Warrensburg where some days there's 30 40 people there you know and usually there's a half dozen track kids that are over there working out we've got our long jump pits available where I actually saw four of our kids over there earlier doing some drills some of our throwers are still throwing so our, our kids are hungry to compete um you know it, they had everything taken away from them it's it's very difficult and they want to continue to move forward, but for us as coaches, we just want them to be safe, and we want them to move forward academically and do well. And I will tell you, this this has been very hard on me. I miss the interaction with the kids. I miss coaching. I miss seeing kids perform. You know, I, I feel like I'm in retirement, but the things I want to do in retirement, go watch track meets and help and participate in those things, I can't do. And so that's very frustrating. Yeah, I think a lot of us, I mean, you're closer to it than most, but a lot of us are missing the sports. And that's why I decided to start with Avery Sheets and you. I thought that maybe talking about it, I can insert some of the clips from your meets and maybe we can scratch that sports itch a little bit, like Avery said last week, to turn back the clock again. You and my dad go quite a ways back to Warrensburg and UCM and I've heard of all kinds of sports that you guys would play. I mentioned a few earlier, but I know that there's or just do. There's pond vaulting, which you said you don't do much of anymore. But I've also heard, I'm not, I don't want to get you to say anything incriminating, but I know there's stair diving. I know that there's some really, what what sparked these things? And where in your training do they fit? Was this just a fun sort of thing? Like the pond vaulting and the stair diving? How long have you lived near that pond? But just elaborate on those if you'd want to. Well, I, I was recruited to the Snafu crew. At least that's how I feel. I mean, obviously, um, I was a very good athlete, and Snafu was known for dominating the intramural ranks at CMSU. And they said, well, hey, we got this guy really good athlete. Let's pick him up, and he can help us do things. And I was pretty good at basketball. I could help their football team a little bit, and their softball team. I think they tried to play me in volleyball one time and said, no, we got to get this kid out of here. But that's how I initially got involved with your dad and the rest of the Snafu crew. Um, I was pretty sheltered growing up and pretty sheltered in college. I mean, I, I, I didn't socialize, didn't party hardly ever. And, you know, the Snafu crew guys, they, they like to play hard and have a good time. And when I got around those guys, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I went too many times to social events, but when I did, it was like, wow, this is kind of fun. These guys are, are really go-getters, and they're having a good time. And it didn't matter whether we were doing a sport or playing the game. It became competitive, and we had people going at each other. And it could be stuff as a mainstream game. And then it could be totally changed. You know, we still play golf, but yet, you know, we may have a driver that's a foot and a half long. We may hit a ball off a beer can. Um, we may throw the ball. It's always altered to make it so somebody is going to get embarrassed and it's going to be a funny situation. And, you know, the thing that I've, I've gained most from the, the Snafu crew, other than a bunch of great loyal friends, is the fun aspect. And those guys are nothing but fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, they're, they're an interesting group. They're really, really great. So I have two more questions left for you. This one, in quarantine with staying at home, I know that you said that it's hard to not be able to interact with your athletes, but what have you been doing to stay happy, stay positive, and kind of maybe be active and have a good time while in this situation? So I, so I have two kids. One of them lives in the city, and um, he has a dog that he got about four months ago. So every now and then he lets me have the dog. So we get to play with the puppy. My other son, who's the baseball player, is back home because there's no baseball going on. And I'll, I'll occasionally go over and watch him hit and watch him do his things. 
uh, watching way, way more TV with my wife than I ever used to. I can't call, call that quality time, but um, that's about as good as I am with that. So spending more time doing that, maybe fishing a little in the yard here. But I am playing golf almost every day. We are still very fortunate that our local golf course, the college course, is open. And I have a group of guys, you know, there's about eight of us, but we always have four or five that play almost every day. And, you know, we all got to stay six feet apart. And there's some things that we got to do. Only one guy in a cart. I walk anyway. But So that for me is that competitiveness. I've got to have that interaction, which is hugely important to me. So our final question, this is not nearly as serious as any of the other questions that I've asked you. I do enjoy hearing what people say. I make up a lot of words in my day-to-day life, just stumbling over them or thinking they're a real word and they're not but if you can make up one word to describe how you feel when you you know play golf or do those fun things that you do currently or play with your son's dog but what would it be well I really I, I thought a lot about this and I struggled at it but I just came up with something that I thought described me everybody shortens the cap on to the deck DEC and I, I think if I break that down and D being dedicated and durable, which I was during my career, mm-hmm. E being going because I feel like I get along with a lot of people and can interact well, and the C, competitive. So I think the, the deck word is something that describes me pretty good and fits who I am. And so that's what I came up with. That's perfect. I love the thought process on that. But so that was our last question. Thank you so much for letting me call you and ask you about your your accomplishments and what you're doing right now. No problem. And I'm sure we'll cross paths sometime soon. I'm sure we will. Thank you so much again. You have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, Kit, for making the time to do that. On to our next thing, the Bible verse of the week. The Bible verse for this week is Proverbs 4.23, and it is, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I think this is very important to live by, to understand, to to think on, and uh, I've been studying a lot of Proverbs lately. If you guys have been doing any Bible studies or have been looking into starting one. I highly recommend reading Proverbs. It's a lot of very simple knowledge from Solomon, who was the wisest man in the Bible, I would say, besides Jesus himself. And it's good to read and good to think on. Next, probably one of my favorite segments, especially because I have two new albums that I love that came out this week. This segment is the song of the week, but I'm going to switch it up a little bit and make it the album of the week. because there were two albums that came out this week and one of them is by Chris Renzima who is amazing. I have a lot of friends from church who told me about him and I just want to say thank you to those of you who got me to listen to Chris Renzima. He's amazing. So he has a new album out but the real album of the week for me would have to be Lennon Stella's new album called 321. I have been a big fan of hers for so long and she came out with her EP Love Me maybe two years ago. She is just absolutely wonderful and her album came out yesterday and I definitely listened to it four times minimum on repeat. So I highly, highly recommend checking out Lennon Stella's newest album, 321. You will not be disappointed. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a great week. I hope you have a great finals week if you're in college. I hope that you have a great rest of quarantine if you are maybe not in college. Let's keep working from home making the best of it. It's getting really nice out, so make sure that you get outside. Don't forget to tell someone that you love them today, and you will hear from me next Saturday with a new, very special interview.